0: Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Operation Sequel. This time it's Final Fantasy VIII. Now in case this is your first episode, this is kind of a solo project that I have going on where I will take a whole series of games. Uh, Right now I'm doing Zelda and Final Fantasy and I'll play through all of the main entries, uh, what appears on a console or what is numbered. I encourage you to, if you have thoughts about the games that I talk about, send in your thoughts. You can do that on Google, Facebook or if it's short enough, even on Twitter and that's all at the bit effect. Final Fantasy VIII released in Japan in February of 1999. In North America, it released in September. And October was when Europe and Australia got it. And of course, it was developed and published by Square. In North America, Square teamed up with EA to publish it. Now, the director slot is Yoshinori Kitase, with the artist being Yusuke Naora, the writer being Kazushige Nojima, and the composer, of course, being Nobuo Uemetsu. Now, this did only get one port, and that was in the 2000. It released on Windows, but other than that, this is kind of just on PlayStation. Now, luckily for this episode, there is a nice little blurb inside the manual that tells you what Final Fantasy VIII is all about. Here we go. At the forefront of a rising tide of violence brought on by Galbadia's war declaration is a seed cadet named Squall Leonhart. Serious to a fault, Squall has earned himself the reputation of being a lone wolf. A chance encounter with the free spirit of Renoa heartily, however, turns his universe upside down. Having thrived on discipline, Squall finds Rinoa's carefree attitude fascinating. Yet there is no time to ponder these thoughts for the job of dealing with the sorceress behind Galbadia's irrational hostility has fallen to Seed and Squall. In Final Fantasy VIII, the player will assume the roles of Squall and Laguna to advance the story. At times, Squall is known to fall into these dreamlike states. It is during these periods where he encounters Laguna. What destiny awaits these two characters? At what point does the story between the two cross? Who is Laguna? Well, I can tell you right now, the point at which the stories cross is kind of Disc 3. So if you're on pins and needles about that, that's when it happens. Also, a lot of these names I've never heard pronounced out loud. So I don't know if it's Laguna or Laguna. I don't know if it's Sefer or Cipher. So do forgive me if it sounds like I'm really stupid saying these words because I've never heard anybody say them. As I said before on the Final Fantasy VII podcast, I played Seven VII and Eight at roughly the same time. Rented Eight, bought Seven, and while well, I talked about it on Final Fantasy VII podcast, but Eight I almost instantly fell in love with. And one of the most simple reasons is it's pretty much all about the summons. Now, differing from Seven, summons are about as long. But you tend to use them much more here than you do in 7. And they play a little bit of a part into the story. But we'll get into all that later. But yes, my history with this... um, This was my favorite of the three PSX games. I'm going to hold off on saying that for sure because I haven't played 9 since release. This, to me, was the most iconic of the PlayStation 1 era RPGs. I mean, Chrono Cross is up there and there's a few other ones that are up there. But this was by far my favorite. And booting it up again, just seeing that CG opening, that is just instant waves of nostalgia. And that's great because I love that song that plays during the CG opening. it I want to say this was the first game soundtrack that I went and sought out on CD and not just, you know, you happen to be in a Sam Goody or an FYE and we're, oh, hey, they have Star Fox 64 on CD. Yeah, I guess I'll buy it. I, th- I want to say this was the first one I purposely sought out. But anyway, so let's crack into the gameplay a little bit and see what's different from 7 and past games. The biggest one here is right at the start of the game, there is a giant tutorial. And it's very smart to actually take that tutorial and take your time with it and understand all the systems at work here because there is a lot more at work under the hood here than there is in, say, 7. One of the biggest changes is Materia is gone, and in its place is the junctioning system. Behind the curtain a little bit, this is the second time I had to record this podcast because I spent like 40 minutes explaining the junctioning system. So I'm going to try to be a little more concise this time. The junctioning system is very simple at its core. And that is you take magic spells that you have drawn from enemies or draw points or you've refined them from items and monster drops that you have and you junction them to stats Now, this does follow somewhat of a logical approach for the most part, like offensive magic spells will boost your strength more than, say, healing spells or or support spells, whereas your life will go up considerably higher if you use, say, Full Life or Curaga instead of Bio or Blizzard. And then to add a little bit of complexity to it, it's not just what spells you use, it's also how many you have in stock. So if you have 100 fire spells that may boost your attack a little bit more than say 50 fear spells so you also have to keep into account what your current inventory is on each character each character can hold up to 100 of a spell and i believe i may be wrong on this but i believe the maximum number of spells you can hold is 32 you have to put a lot of thought into when you go into battle do i want to use this spell that might be the right spell for this moment but it's junction to one of the stats that I really need. Do I want to lower that coefficient ratio by using the spell here? And I really enjoyed that a lot. That adds a lot of interesting character development when you're playing. Personally, I went with kind of a... I guess you could call it a standard Warcraft party. I had Squall as kind of my tank and summoner, and I had Zell as the all-out just physical damage with a couple of status attacks junction to his attack. Which, I guess I should say now, you can junction a status to your attack and also an element. So, you know, if you have happen to have water junction to your attack stat and you attack, say, Leviathan with it, then you're going to do nothing but heal him. So, there's also a little bit of forethought going into it. And then Irvin was kind of my just all-around mage glass cannon. And that's the party I stuck with kind of for most of the game. This isn't as bad as past Final Fantasies have been, where there are parts where it forces you to switch your character because you can just, at a menu button, switch junctions from one character to another so everything just kind of transfers back and forth. Kind of the way Materia, you could do that with Materia, just less of a hassle. I think they learned a lesson when it came to now you're forced to use party members you didn't really use. Surrounding this whole core system of junctioning and drawing is of course the Guardian forces which are what they call the summons in this so it's your usual Shiva and if written Cerberus oh on a side note an interesting thing to Google would be the Thunder representative in this is Quetzalcoatl and You don't really see him around very often in game, so it's kind of cool to read about that anyway so you get a couple of these thrown into your lap right like you get your normal Shiva your Ifrit, just kind of dumped in your lap at the beginning of the game other guardian forces you have to draw out of bosses or very specific fights then you also have some that are just kind of there on the world map like Cerberus where at the time that you fight him it's a bit of a difficult fight but if you defeat him you can use him as a guardian force and then you have one or two really odd obse- eh, exceptions to it which kind of like Doom Train where you have an item and you need to gather a certain amount of other items and use them all at the same time and that summons Doom Train and he'll help you by letting you you know use them as a guardian force. There are some mini guardian forces in this like Odin is kind of a mini guardian force which by the way he, he is here with the normal time limit to the fight but that time limit also extends to the dungeon itself. So it made that fight just that little bit more tense because depending on how you did through his dungeon, that's how much time you have left. They just stuff that place full of Tonberries. I think this game is what made me really like Tonberries because they are the most adorable little buggers. They they hit like a truck and they're built like a tank. So depending on how fast you can smash through these Tonberries to get to Odin. That depends on how you know well you're set up for that kind of thing, and then that determines how much time you have left to defeat Odin. Uh, later on in the game, Odin does get killed and is replaced by Gilgamesh. If you acquire an item called a Phoenix Pinion and you use it, it will resurrect any dead characters and also summon Phoenix. And then what this does is after you've used that for the first time, anytime you do a full party wipe there is a small chance that Phoenix will show up, resurrect everybody, and also damage whatever you're fighting. There's a couple times where that might save you from death, and it may be worth going and getting. Now, the only complaint I have, I guess, with summons is their cutscene is incredibly long. They do give you something to do while the cutscenes are going. You can hit square to up the damage of the attack while the attack animation is playing out. If you rely heavily on Guardian Forces, you're going to be seeing some of these summons quite a bit and their cutscenes do get a little old after a while except for of course Diablos which is the coolest of the summons it never gets old ever add that on to the fact that once you get midway to the later end of the game summoning a GF isn't really the best way to do damage there are certain cases where you know if you're weak in one element that might be the best way to do it uh, what I ended up using them for quite a bit was once you start to summon a GF, their health bar takes the place of yours. So if you know a big hit's coming, like a Mega Flare or a Giga Flare, you can use that to kind of just soak up all the damage. That's kind of a nice strategic thing. I mean, later on, you got to go and you have to resurrect them or heal them. They do heal naturally by themselves, just you walking around. And their levels are nothing you really have to worry about because they level at a flat rate of every thousand points. So they're gonna be quite high in levels before you are actually. So you don't have to worry about using them like pets and you have to level them up and all that. None of that nonsense. Now, another big system in Final Fantasy VIII that I've alluded to is the draw system. And in this, there are no, you naturally get charges of magic like there are in older Final Fantasies. There's no NP, like there are in older Final Fantasies. This has the idea of you have to draw your magic from either spots around the world. You'll see them. They look like little glittery fountains that you can, say, draw cura from. Or you draw them directly from enemies and bosses. And how much you draw depends on your magic stat. So if you find yourself wanting to draw a whole bunch of magic, it's worthwhile to junction something to that magic stat. This is kind of a very divisive thing. I I just checked out a couple message boards. There are a couple people that absolutely hate it. And there are a bunch of people who actually really like it. I kind of fall into that really like it category. Because it kind of cuts out farming. You will never really have to farm for levels in this. And actually, that could be a little detrimental. Because in this, the enemies actually scale with you. It's not a one-to-one scale. It's kind of like if you were level 30 then maybe this mob will be somewhere between the 27 to 32 range. But yeah, this eliminates all need for farming. Uh, even your, I'll explain your money later, but even your money is taken care of where you don't need to farm for money. The only thing you ever really need to farm for is item drops. And you don't need to, that's for optional stuff. But anyway, back to the draw system. The closest thing you'll have to get to farming for levels, so you can get another spell would be you might have to prolong a battle a little bit more so you can draw more magic. But if you have a good stat junction to your magic stat, you can generally draw 9 at a time, and then you're only there for like maybe nine, ten rounds, and you now have a full stock on one character of this spell. There were a couple fights that I did prolong a little more, like, you know, I, I did prolong a fight long enough so I could get 100 triple spells. And triple spell is just exactly what it says on the tin. It allows you to cast three spells in one turn. Which is almost essential when you start getting into some of the optional side stuff later on in the game. And, well, Ultimecia herself, the end boss. Yeah, I found myself having to hang around in a battle a little longer than I normally would. But I think that works better than farming because most Final Fantasy games, mainly the older ones, you're, you know, you're running around for an hour two hours just to get some levels. So you can just bust through what you're stuck at. Uh, whereas in this, I don't think you spare I mean, it's maybe an extra 15 minutes in a fight... If you have a good stat junction system going... Where you can just draw whatever you want. Now, also on the plus note is... A lot of bosses carry restorative magic with them. So if you get hit with a nasty spell or an attack... Or even a status effect... Sometimes the bosses will actually have Asuna on them or cura or Kuraga, so even if you're out the game gives you kind of a trap door to where you can pull yourself back from the brink of defeat by drawing what's on the boss and casting it so in the end this might be my favorite magic system because i like this way better than charges and i like this way better than having to grind levels to get a spell like i think final fantasy 4 was the one where i really ended up grinding a level or two or ten to get a spell so you know a fight would go easier Okay, so we're 16 minutes in and I described the two big things about 8. All right, I think this is much better than like the 40 minutes I did before. Uh, A couple of other things to note on the gameplay-wise of Final Fantasy 8 is this is very light on the fantasy elements. It kind of follows in Seven's footsteps with that. Uh, You're renting cars, you have to worry about fuel. You go to cities and it's the level of technology that you would think of like Star Trek level of technology I don't know if this one being so un, let's say, fantasy-like is why with 9, they ended up going way back to their roots. But I didn't mind it. I I liked it. It it was quite a nice change of pace. It's a more realized world than, say, 7. Because in 7, I I always got the, um, the feeling that there was set dressing. It wasn't necessarily a world, whereas this, there are, you know, intercity politics that go on between the gardens and this city and that city. So it feels a little bit better, that regard. Uh, I will say the world itself, when you're traveling the world map, if you don't have a car or you haven't stumbled across a Chocobo forest and gotten a Chocobo, is a little too sprawling. Like, once you get the Ragnarok or you can fly the garden, that's not too bad. But until that point, it does feel like there's a lot of empty space between cities that they probably could have squinched together a little bit more. Also, a little different from Seven is the fact that there's only one character model that you're ever going to see of any of the characters. They don't do that thing with Seven where there's kind of the, the, you know, Duplo Box character, and then in battle, it's kind of a better character. It's pretty much the same everywhere. Now, of course, you do have some CG character models, but you know what I mean. Uh, They do look nice in this. It it takes a little while to get your eyes readjusted to PlayStation 1 graphics. But once you do, most things in this game look pretty good. And it kind of made me realize that that I got a really big soft spot for pre-rendered background games. Uh, Between this and Resident Evil and 7, yeah, there's something about pre-rendered backgrounds, man, that just do it for me. Unlike 7, they do dial back the amount of, let's say just random mini games that pop up. Like you remember in seven, you had the, you know, you had to do the CPR one. You had to do the, the motorcycle one. And then, you know, Chocobo one. There were a bunch of just these mini games hucked in at certain points or like the mountain climbing one. In this, there is one giant mini game and that's triple triad. And I'm just going to cut down all of my rambling thoughts about triple triad and say, this is absolutely amazing, and I'm really surprised they haven't cashed in on how good of a game this is. Like, I, I think I remember them releasing actual Triple Triad cards, but I don't know why they didn't make, like, a mobile or portable game that was just Triple Triad. I mean, I would have bought it. I don't know how well it would have sold other than that, but, I yeah, I absolutely love Triple Triad. This ranks way up there in terms of game mini games. So, like, it, it beats, like, Pizak it, it beats, te- it definitely beats Tetramaster. Anyway, I'm sorry, Triple Triad is really good, and it's not just good for playing a card game every once in a while, it's also really good for using some of your GF abilities to refine your cards into items, which you then can refine further into different magic or other items or things you'll need to use your weapons, you know, upgraded weapons, I'm sorry. Which, again, different from seven, there are not very many upgrade weapons in this. I mean, you're looking at maybe six tops. So it's a very linear ladder that you're going to go up. And they all revolve around drops from monsters. So you get a drop from a monster and then you can go to a junk shop and they're like, okay, we need six Marlboro tentacles and 47 screws. And then you can make your new weapon. But yeah, it's pretty much a staircase you're climbing up. Oh, but yes, back to the minigames. Uh, there's really only one or two here, like the Train Heist is one, which was a lot of fun. It was kind of a red light, green light go kind of game that you were playing while you were trying to uncouple cars on a train. But other than that, they don't really do those kind of incidental mini games like they did in Seven. So they really dialed that back. Uh, another thing they did different is the way Blue Mage works, because one of your party members, Quistis, is a Blue Mage, and she doesn't rely on it like Gao did, or she doesn't rely on it the way um, Kimrahi does, or Kimari, I can never remember that thing's name. She's another branch where all of her spells you can't use unless you're in limit break territory, which in this limit break is a, once you hit a certain percentage of your health, you can then start using limit breaks. But all her blue magic is limited to those limit breaks. (laughs) And the way you learn new spells is just simply from item drops. So, you know, you can learn bad breath if a Marlboro drops a tentacle. I don't mind the way that works here too much. Now, to be honest, I didn't use Quistus at all. Pretty much Zell, Irving, and Squall. That was it. That's all I really used for the game. And I'll talk about why a little bit later. Sticking with the gameplay end of things, this being a PlayStation 1 game, it does have those battle transitions. Now, I was worried when I played Final Fantasy VII about how slow Final Fantasy VII moved. Luckily, they did up the pace in eight the battles are a little bit snappier than they are in 7, and that battle transition from, say, world map or dungeon to a battle, I would say only takes maybe 15 seconds each one, and a lot of it has to do with, you know, they're, they're moving the camera, showcasing the monster, and then your party, and then you're right into it. But yeah, this moves snappy enough to where I didn't really feel the need for a triple speed button the way I did with Final Fantasy 7, which works out great because there isn't a triple speed button. Now, I guess before transitioning into more about the story, the last thing I wanted to say about the gameplay was that 8 is a much bigger spectacle than 7. Do you remember how in 7 they would have like a CG movie kind of blend into the background? Here they really step it up and their CG looks way better. Plus, they also use that as a background while you on the foreground are doing stuff. Like, for instance, uh, during your opening mission in Dalit, There is a scene where this giant, I guess mechanical spider, is the best way to put it, is chasing after you. And the mechanical spider is a CGI video that's playing behind what's in the foreground. And that, plus the pre-rendered background, makes that look pretty good. Still, for its time, it was amazing, but now it looks pretty good. You're not going to look at it and laugh. It doesn't look like, say, blue screen or green screen in an old 60s movie where, you know, they're pretending to drive the car and behind them it's like nothing like what it would look like. It doesn't look like that. It, it does kind of work, and they blend it together very well. Oh, uh, really quick, speaking of the Dalit mission. So, the beginning of the game, you are a mercenary. And this might segue a little bit into the story. Hey, I might be learning how to do this. So, in that beginning mission in Dalit, you, this is a training mission. You're just about to become a full-fledged seed. This is their, like, trial run of you as a seed. And how you do and conduct yourself on this mission, that determines what your rank is. So let's say you waste time and you talk to a lot of townspeople instead of doing your mission. That will give you a lower rank than, say, if you had just got in, did your job, and got out really quickly while destroying a bunch of monsters. And the rank determines how much you get paid. So at certain intervals, you will get paid because you are a mercenary. So the higher your rank, the more your salary. Now, let's say you get unlucky and you start with a really low salary. How you play the game will up your salary and consequently your rank. And if you're somehow not playing well enough or, you know, maybe you just goof up a bunch like I do all the time, then there are also written tests that you can take that will quiz you about stuff in the game. And if you score a perfect on those tests, that was a motorcycle. But if you score perfect on those tests, then you can raise your rank. But you can only use those tests once. So you want to make sure if you raise up to rank 10, if you fall back down to 9, you can't use a test to raise yourself back up to 10. Okay. I think that's all of the gameplay stuff I wanted to talk about. All in all, really like the gameplay much more than 7 or 6. On to the story. So with 7 the big thing that they had going on was kind of that mystery angle of what is with, you know, Shinra, and then what is with Jenova, and then towards the end, what was with Sephiroth. In this, it kind of starts that way. Your, let's say, frenemy, Cipher, Sepher, however you want to call him, he is kind of out there in, in terms of the way he acts, and you know, you're wondering, why is he doing this? What's he doing? They explain that fairly quickly. He then goes completely bug nuts, and you're wondering what the hell is going on with Cypher for most of the game, before he just kind of pops back in and wha-bam, now you understand. I don't like that as much as I like the Genova or Sephiroth, but the big deal here is, of course, even in the prologue, Renoa, and they go to pretty decent lengths to make you actually like Renoa. Like, the first scene you really get to see her personality shine through is a CG cutscene where they're celebrating their graduation and she shows up and she's trying to get Squall to dance and it's all very anime and wonderful. But it, it endears you to her early enough to where you'll care about her before you know really anything major about her. Like, she just seems nice. So they did a very good job of making you care about a character. I think I would like her introduction a little more than I like Eris' introduction. But that might just be me simply liking Final Fantasy VIII a little more. So I should shut up about that. And then once you realize the whole story kind of centers around her, you already have that goodwill built up towards that character to where you do care. They don't play the mystery card here for very long. A lot of things are spelled out. Absolutely. Many times over, so you will know every twist and turn. Like, they'll reiterate some twists and turns. Not to an annoying degree, but enough to where you'll make sure you know what the story is about and what's going on. In broad strokes, very broad strokes, the story is about a time-traveling sorceress who is trying to use Renoa in order to gather the power of the other sorceresses left, which are Idea and... The guy's name starts with an A, but I can't remember his name. (laughs) I swear I played it, I swear. That is very broad strokes. It involves time travel. It involves, well, like in the prologue, you end up just kind of going into a trance and then waking up as another person. The story is enough to keep me interested, and I think they wrapped up most of the parts pretty well. But there's a little bit of shooting from the hip, it feels like, going on. All in all, I would say this story isn't as good as Seven, but it's not bad by any means. Uh, it was a lot more confusing to keep track of, and they tried to hit for different themes than they did with Seven, and I'll explain a little bit about that later. But uh, really quick, the main cast of characters are all students and one instructor at the school, mercenary school I guess, that you live at and work for. So you meet your cast of characters pretty early on, and they stick with you all game. That doesn't really do the rotating slot or any of that. There are times where, of course, you'll be forced to use one person. Um, the one thing I'll give it is kind of the thing that Final Fantasy does in almost every game that has a larger cast, and that is some people just kind of fall off. Like Irvin, he is the the sharpshooter that gets the mission to snipe the sorceress. Very cool cutscene, by the way. But after that's all said and done and you're moving on with the story, he kind of really does nothing but become the boyfriend that stands around and hangs out with the other person who kind of gets left in the dust, and that's selfie. She's your usual, typical, bubbly, you know, high school girl. I like selfies She's pretty cool. And then that leaves you with Quistis, which was your instructor, who then got busted down, and now she's just the same as you. Uh, the relationship between Squall and Quistis is really weird when she's still your instructor, Like, if I had a teacher act like that, I'd be picking up some really weird vibes. They kind of leave her in the dust, too. Like, she kind of gets just kind of hucked to the side. and She'll have important things to say every now and again, but it's kind of, you know, it's like the Star Trek thing of, huh, we haven't had Worf say anything in a while. Here, let's have him say this. Uh, Your last ancillary character would be Zell. Zell is probably my favorite. Like, when I was a teenager, Squall... Was the one I most identified with, right? Because He was all angsty and just yes, squall. Now he looks really mopey. <laughs> now I, I very much am I identify more with Zell, who is just kind of an upbeat, happy-go-lucky, yeah, let's punch things in the face, woo, this is fun kind of guy, than Squall, who is very introverted, and it's an interesting way to do. Squall is almost a silent protagonist. I mean, he does talk, but he doesn't talk very much. And it's an interesting way to do an introverted character. And I will give them one thing. They do a very good job of changing Squall. Like, towards the end of the game, he is nothing like... nothing. Wow, I don't know where that came from. Towards the end of the game, he is nothing like he was at the beginning. And they do a very good job of that character's journey. They just kind of, you know, leave some broken husks along the way. And then, of course, you have Renoa. And the story centers around her quite a bit, which means she's not available to be in your party as much as everybody else. But like I said, with the junction exchange, it's not a big deal. You just, and then somebody else is, you know, Renoa Mark II. I think they stopped developing her character for a while. And I don't know if that's just because you don't see her as often, but once you get into like disc three and you're dealing with, you know, Ultimecia trying to take her consciousness and move into her body. And all that fun stuff. I think it was Adele. I'm sorry, that came out of nowhere. I sound like Mike. Uh, I think the other sorcerer was Adele. So it was Adea and Adele, I think. Or maybe I'm thinking of the singer. I'm not sure. But anyway, yeah. So while these sorceresses are kind of battling over her, then they really start to bring in more character development for her. It just seems like it was kind of halted for a little while. And then once you get back to her, it's very accelerated. Now, uh, a couple of things I would like to talk about, because in most of these Final Fantasy games, especially like, say, from 4 onward, they all kind of deal with a theme. And this one really, you know, it's, it doesn't fall short in that regard. There are a couple of themes that the story works towards that I can't say I honestly picked up when I was a teenager, but now you, I can definitely see them. And in this one, it kind of deals with themes of, you know, opening yourself up to others, trusting yourself with them. Uh, And then it kind of moves a little bit on to dealing with the choices you make and accepting the consequences or rewards of those actions. So I kind of see what it's going for. It's also, of course, going for, you know, love can solve everything because it it is a love story at its core. Those other themes, it it plays at quite a bit, enough to at least where I noticed it. I would like to talk about uh, Laguna. And first of all, this song is still amazing. I still love Man with a Machine Gun. Like, it might be one of my favorite battle themes uh, out of all of Final Fantasy. But yes, that's still great. Now, when I was a teenager, looking back on it now, before I played this, I could not remember for the life of me where those two stories intersect. And I I won't exactly spoil it, but they intersect at a pretty good point. It makes sense within the world, and I like the way they intersect. It does throw you for a loop when you just start playing it as a whole different party. It's Laguna, Kiros, and Ward. Towards the beginning of the game, they kind of toy with the idea of each of those is an alternate of someone else. But later on in the game, they kind of explain that and move on. And then you don't see Laguna for a long time. But yeah, I, I really like the way those two stories intersect. I don't like the way his story wraps up because it kind of falls flat because, you know, on one end, Squall is going into space, doing all of this stuff, and then he's just kind of there. So I wish they would have had a little bit of a better ending for Laguna. Laguna is also where Final Fantasy gets its requisite goofy out of the way with um him trying to get a job as an actor. So there's a little bit of goofiness going on and they keep that relegated mainly towards Laguna. Other than your random odd selfie bit. So, I will start to close this up because it has been long. Final thoughts being, I still really like Final Fantasy VIII. Like, I like it enough to where if they came out with a remaster of it in the next couple of months, I would play it again and go for a Platinum Trophy. I liked it that much. I did end the game at, I want to say, most of my party was level 56, I think, and it, I did take my time with this. I spent 60-some-odd hours in it. I think it was like 60, 63, somewhere in there. So I really enjoyed this. And it's kind of surprising how much I really enjoyed this. I mean, I always liked it. This was always my favorite. But I couldn't remember why. And now, um, I definitely know why. So Final Fantasy IX, even though it's back to the roots, has a lot to live up to with eight. Now, I don't know why exactly 8 does have that Black Sheep connotation to it. Because Final Fantasy is a huge series, right? Like, I don't need to tell you that. But 8 kind of gets tucked off into a little bit of a dark corner. And they don't really bring out any of the characters. They don't really tout out Squall the same way they'll tout out Cloud naturally. Because, you know, 7 was amazing. Until you get into Kingdom Hearts. So... I don't know why. I wonder if it is because there was more people that disliked the draw system and the GF system than the were that liked it. I'm not sure, but I would love to see this get remastered. Absolutely. All right, so next on the list is Zelda Breath of the Wild, and that's going to be the last Zelda game we play. I'm a little bit excited to finally finish off the series, and then I'm also a little sad because everybody says Breath of the Wild, man. That is the best, including Craig. Matter of fact, he won't shut up about it. So, if you have any thoughts on either Final Fantasy VIII or Breath of the Wild, I'd love to see them. And you, like I said at the beginning, you know where to go to do that. So all that's left for me to do is to say thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you next time.